Good morning, good afternoon, good evening from wherever you may be. This is Snapshots in Hockey History. And welcome to another episode of Snapshots in Hockey History, where we relive the hockey highlight reel. My name is Brett Small. As always, just a friendly reminder, Snapshots in Hockey History is a listener-supported podcast brought to you free of charge every single Monday at 8 a.m. I will never ask you for a dollar out of your pocket for this podcast. But if you want to do something nice, you want to help us out, please consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. I love reading the reviews, and they also really help with the algorithms of spreading the word of the podcast. And don't forget to follow us on social media, on Facebook at Snapshots in Hockey History, and on Twitter at Snapshots In. Well, good morning. Happy Monday. I'm recording this at 7.14 a.m., and I try to get these things out at 8 a.m. So as you can imagine, it was a pretty crazy weekend. And I'm kind of unprepared. The Nats won the World Series last week, and DC has just been natitude crazy. But we're here to talk hockey. And this guest this week was awesome, as most of them are. But I was really, really excited to connect with Doug Smith because his interview, which I'm going to go ahead and play here in a few minutes, is unlike any interview we've done. This is probably the realest interview we've had so far. Doug doesn't hold back on anything. And for those that don't know Doug, Doug is not the goon. Doug Smith. This is Doug Smith that played in the NHL. He played for the LA Kings. He played for, uh, I believe he played for the Pittsburgh Penguins. He also played for the Buffalo Sabres, but we're covering his 85-86 season. And Doug is a speaker now, an author, uh, a trauma victim. He was paralyzed from the neck down at one point, and we get into that. And that occurred while he was playing in Europe. But we cover his 85-86 season, and we get into kind of the darker side of what it's like to be a pro hockey player, what it's like to be young and in a city like Los Angeles. And I don't want to say abused, but he kind of was. He was kind of mentally abused through the system and the pressures that kind of came with being a pro hockey player. Um, so this is an interesting interview. This is this is unlike anyone that we've done so far. And, and uh, it offers a really unique perspective. And Doug's a, a phenomenal speaker. He doesn't hold back. And while most of the interviews are on a timeline, and, and I did kind of stick to the timeline here, this one, we we kind of was a little bit more full of his whole career. I, I let him just talk and he was so open. I didn't want to I didn't want to to hinder him at all by, by kind of keeping him on the timeline. So this is kind of a it is along the timeline, but it's a little bit of a smattering. If, if what I said makes sense, I'm not sure it could have been just me rambling. Um, but there's a lot of good content in here and uh, really gives a, a unique perspective. So um, other than that, you know, not much to report this morning. I unfortunately I, I had this whole thing planned. I wanted to talk about Jim Gregory a little bit who passed away last week, former NHL GM with the Toronto Maple Leafs and longtime figure. I feel like he is it got a he had a great gig this last few years. Anytime there was a big award, he would go with the NHL and typically represent them to give this award. So a lot of times when players would reach a thousand games or, or something like that, he would be one of the guys on the ice that was handing out something from the NHL, which I don't know how I get that gig, but that's awesome. I guess I'd become an NHL GM and hang around the game my whole life. And then at 80 years old, I probably get that gig. But uh, I had the privilege of meeting him a couple of years ago. A really nice man. Really enjoyed chatting with him. 
but was really, really sorry to, uh, to see that he passed away at 83. Um, but wanted to do like a whole thing on him. But unfortunately, I just don't have the time. So hopefully we'll get down to that. But rest in peace to him. Good man and uh, very nice man from when I met him. But anyways, here's the interview with um, Doug Smith. Let me know what you guys think and uh, enjoy. I think this was a, a pretty unique perspective. One thing that kind of messed me up a little bit is you guys opened camp in British Columbia during the second week of October. And this is a very random question, but I'm curious, was this common for camps to be, you know, for, for, for the team to pack up and put camp somewhere across the country even? Uh, I guess it was common for Los Angeles uh, because even then they reali realized Los Angeles was a scary place to bring 70 guys you know and let I, them run loose i could see that so it, it i guess my question was what's the theory behind that but you just said it it, it was just not the best area to have 70 single <laughs> guys running around <laughs> no bad idea makes sense makes sense so at this point you're in your early 20s and you'd already been in the league for a few years so i guess i should ask you know the prior season you'd missed a few games due to injury but where were you in your career kind of what was going on in your world well, the Kings were in the middle of uh, hiring Pat Quinn. Yep, yep. This would be his first season. Yes, and uh, Pat and I became good friends because Pat was the first person I met in five years playing in the National Hockey League who sat me down and asked me what I wanted to achieve. So let's talk about that a little bit. When does that take place and how does that kind of come about? Well, I had been begging to be traded uh, for about two years when Pat arrived. I had even gone public in Toronto and asked to be traded because I was such a high draft pick. They didn't want to let me go, yet they didn't really care whether I showed up or not. It was one of those dilemmas in the workplace, right? Well, you had a couple of people in front of you. You had, if I'm not mistaken, Marcel Dion, and there was another center in front of you as well. And, and I, I was going to ask that later, but do you feel like the Kings really ever gave you a chance Oh yeah, they gave that my first year. I was the Iron Man, right? I 18 years old, the the only one of the 18 year olds to play every game and every playoff game. We beat the Edmonton Oilers out of the playoffs. They they started to believe in me at the end of that year, and then, of course, the ups and downs on both sides. I don't blame anybody. I was part of the problem at times. Okay, okay, you well, know, but 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 there was nobody babysitting me like there is today. Uh, each one of the players at 18 has five supporters. Connor McDavid has five supporters. I was at the same level as Connor McDavid. I had zero supporters. In fact, I had uh, opposite of zero supporters. I had half the guys in the team that, that wanted to take me out because they didn't want to lose their spot. Nobody cared. I can't even imagine coming in as an 18-year-old. Like, now they give everyone an agenda. You're going to stay here. You're going to do that. And I guess before we get on to the 85-86 season, what was when you first get to L.A., is there anyone even there that shows you around? No. They put me in the Airport Park Hotel, which was right in the parking lot of the forum in Los Angeles by the racetrack in Inglewood, California. And they left me there for two months. <laughs> so you literally had to figure things out as you, and there's no roadmap on what to do when you make it to the NHL. Well, I did what any 18 year old would do. Um, with lots of money, I went and bought a brand new Porsche off the showroom floor, told her to take it off the floor. And, and, and I, I, I showed up at the airport park hotel with a beautiful black, uh, Porsche with sheepskin seats and you know the head of security with the LA Kings he was so concerned about me he gave me a loaded 38 what to keep under the seat of my car 
Wow. Yeah, yeah, you know, at the time, I thought it was normal. How was I supposed to know? You, you wouldn't. You're 18. As you said, you're 18 years old. There's not anybody that's really showed you what to do. And getting back to this season, so you guys open up in British Columbia, and, and the preseason starts off kind of rocky. And you have a pair of losses against the Vancouver Canucks in Western Canada and then suffered a tough loss against the Canadian national team. A couple more losses. And finally you pick up a win and says, Pat Quinn says it's long overdue with a tough preseason like that. Are guys nervous or is it just the preseason? Preseasons are all the same. You know, I don't, I don't remember any of them being any different where you just have to watch out for certain things. Uh, there was a lot of excitement that year because having Pat Quinn, uh, around, uh, gets people's attention you know he was a player's coach and we had never seen that in Los Angeles uh, in my Pat came in and like Brian Kilray was a player's coach and he sat the guys down and he actually talked to them like they were like they were human beings and 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 so when he did that I told him th that I would love to stay I, I just couldn't I, I've been trying to get out and and he said if I played hard he would trade me and, and, and I made a commitment that year to, to get out of the press box as a healthy scratch and to get back in the game. And, and uh, at trade deadline, Scotty Bowman stepped in and uh, he uh, finally got me. He had been trying to trade for me for four and a half years. He, he told me I, I wasn't aware of it. And I definitely want to get to that. But before we get to that, the regular season starts off. Chris Baker from the LA Times interviewed Pat Quinn, and when asked about the upcoming season and where the Kings might finish, he said, Edmonton is the best team in hockey. I'd like to think we'll be able to challenge them for second place, meaning nobody's going to beat Edmonton. And I'm, I'm kind of curious, as a player in the league, after you hear a quote like that, I know Edmonton was good, but were they just that dominant for that period? Yes. I was kind of surprised because... You don't usually hear a coach say something like that, but it sounds like Pat Quinn was a real honest guy. And and what other, as a coach, you said he's a player's coach, but what kind of things would he do that was different from everybody else? <laughs> Tell the truth. Really? Yeah, be up front, not have a right-hand guy in the room, always checking to see what people are saying and investigate what's being said and operating behind people's backs. You know, it's just a waste of time and energy. It destroys human morale. And and he understood that. So did Brian Kilray. And I was very sad the day that Pat Quinn died. <laughs> he was an incredible figure in hockey. But off the ice, he sounds like an even better man from what many people have told me. Is that a fair statement? It is. And he's the type of guy, and everybody knows this, who ever sat in a dressing room, he would come into the dressing room and he'd be losing four to two after the first period and he'd kick over the garbage can but he'd always wink at somebody so you know he'd be a he he'd be angry but you know those big cowboy boots would scare the shit out of you and you'd realize hey this guy wants to win as bad as i do so you'd get it going right and the team did get off to a little bit of a rough start and one thing i i thought that was interesting when i read there was an eight game losing streak is pat quinn used to sit everybody down and would make everybody watch an entire game after a loss. Is that true? It was so painful. I think I blocked it out. I remember, <laughs> I remember Roger Nilsson when he first came into the league being in L.A. and sitting in the back room at a 14-inch screen where Jerry Korab used to sit and smoke cigarettes while he watched his videos, you know? Mm, man, how, how, how times have changed. And 
Pat Quinn, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the understatement of the day. I guess Pat Quinn juggled the lines a lot early on. And um, I'm kind of curious, you know, it was it was a tough beginning. How did Dave Taylor, who had recently been named captain, what was your relationship like with him and what kind of captain was he? Oh, Dave was awesome. You know, you know where he came from, like, you know, 12th round or something, you know, hung on, used a straight stick most of his career. Uh, you know, him and Beth were fantastic. They were great role models for me. I wish he would have been captain the first year I got there, you know, but you know, he, Dave is a wonderful guy. I, whenever I see him, uh, I give him a big hug, man. He, he, he probably saved my life more than, uh, more than a few times. And I probably don't even know it because guys wanted to kill me. They wanted to take me out. So such a pain in the ass. And, you know, you needed people around you that, 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 that cared about you. For sure. For sure. Absolutely. And one guy I think that probably cared a lot about you. And I've heard he was an interesting character is Dave Tiger Williams. And in a game, he kind of came to your aid. It looked like when somebody was trying to jump you, the role of the enforcer is kind of gone, but what can you share with us about Dave Tiger Williams? I played with him for two years and, uh, um, he made a lot of space and this guy knew whenever there was no cameras in the building and we only had one referee at that time. And, um, Tiger would, would just come into the corner and he would, he would, he used to sharpen the end of his stick because he'd turn his stick over so the blade was up, right? So he'd carry his blade up. And he, before the game, he would sharpen the end of that stick so it was razor sharp, just like a, just like a, like a shiv in prison. It's like something and, out of slap shot. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he'd come into the group, right? And he was a big guy. He was only 5'10 or something. And he'd look at guys, right? And then he'd go over to them. And he'd give them a little jab in the chin with a stick, and he'd cut them for two or three stitches. Oh, Just my boom. God. And, and, and so he's, he's out there with a sharp knife, you know, like, like able to, to hurt people really badly. And they, without cameras, like imagine seeing that today. Somebody goes into the corner, turns their stick over, and then slices somebody's face with their stick on camera. Could you imagine TMZ <laughs> and TSN just, like, zoning in on that? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, one-way trip to prison right there. Oh, my God. There's no way that that would fly today. There's just no way. <laughs> so we've got <laughs> we've got a loaded gun that you've been given. We've got a teammate basically carrying a shiv. Any other massive weapons going on with the L.A. Kings from the 80s? <laughs> well, the 80s, you want a massive weapon. There's It's called cocaine because the movie Blow with Johnny Depp was made in 1978. And when the cartel stopped shipping into Florida, they moved all the influx of cocaine in 1980, 1981, when I was drafted by the Kings, into uh, the Los Angeles harbors. And so Los Angeles became the cocaine capital of the world at that particular time. And it wasn't a drug, so it really wasn't illegal. Everybody had it on on all their buffets everywhere you went in Beverly Hills. Like it was almost like, what, you don't want any? I mean, it was like candy. It was like candy. It was just out for you to take. And as a young guy, do you feel pressure to take that stuff? Oh, well, I mean, it, it was, it was also beside the reds and the blues and the greens and the, you know, and the acid and the, and the cannabis and the, you know, it, it, it was part of the culture. When I arrived there, I had never seen anything like this, but but they just let me go, and I and, and so 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 again, you know, it was a slow mental slide. It was more like cumulative emotional trauma leading up to the to the point where Pat Quinn had a chance to work with me. But later in my career, uh, after Buffalo, 
uh, Pat Quinn would then get me back in Vancouver. So he would eventually, you guys would hook up. So really, Pat Quinn throughout your entire career was a huge influence. Yes, 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 yes. He was like, uh, you know, Brian Kilray would have been my dad in junior hockey, and Pat Quinn would have been my dad in the NHL. Very, very, very interesting. I had no idea that you kind of had that relationship with Pat. Well, things start to turn around for the LA Kings throughout the season, and uh, following a game in Hartford, the Kings traveled to Philadelphia where Tim Kerr scored a hat-trick as the Flyers toppled the Kings 7-4. to and I believe this was also where the Kings goalie uh, Steve Janicek was suspended for five games as a result of a stick swinging incident with Peter Zezel. And this is like the wild, wild west. Can you talk a little bit about how different the game has changed over the past 30 years? I know we touched on it five seconds ago, but but I mean, stick swinging incidents. Would that fly today? I ask you. Yeah, I, I told you one of the deadly incidences uh, physically. Um but one of the most deadly incidences that happened was Paul Mulvey, who ended up winning in court against the Los Angeles Kings for, for Don Perry and the Los Angeles Kings destroying his NHL hockey career. And I hear Paul Mulvey's doing really well, but I was sitting on the bench beside him when this happened. And, and he, he, he hadn't been played in three games by Don Perry. And then there was a bench-clearing brawl, a third bench-clearing brawl we'd had in like three games in Los Angeles because there was never any cameras in L.A. And Don Perry wanted him to go out and fight Dave Semenko. And you know what? I wouldn't fight Dave Semenko for anything. No, he, neither he, would I. He, okay, and, and so, so he wanted Paul Mulvey to go out and fight Dave Semenko. And Paul Mulvey said no. And Don Perry, next day, sent him to the minors. And then the minors fired him and destroyed his career in a week. And he sued the LA Kings and Don Perry. And he won, but he never played another game. I feel like you guys at this point were almost treated like a herd of cattle. And exactly. That's exactly how it felt. Exactly how it felt. You just, you know, if you knew as a cow, you know, that this shouldn't happen, but you just kept getting whipped every day for no reason. I had to fight my own players in practice. Don Perry used to make space for players to fight each other in practice. You know how that feels when you got to go to the rink as a 19 year old and fight guys like Mark Hardy. How do you right? the next day the line up next to a guy after you guys have punched each other's face? How do you guys sit next to each other in a locker room? Well, it's not that. It's how do you go out and protect the guy from getting the shit punched out of him? God. I you know, like when, when that's your responsibility. So you're, you're all of a sudden you're in a firestorm of emotions, right? And, it, and, and, it, and it's so traumatizing. People don't understand. Like you want to do good. I mean, we're here to do good, right? <laughs> we're, not, we're not here to do bad. The team finally returns home after this East Coast road swing where it's just craziness. And you're greeted by the Edmonton Oilers. And we talked about how good they are. Dave Taylor decked Wayne Gretzky during this game and then had to square off with Steve Smith. When Was Gretzky off limits? Like, how did that – I feel like – was there an aura around him or what was it like playing against him? So playing against Wayne was like playing against a ghost. So he, he, he had the ability to move laterally and backwards – um, it, almost instantly. So it'd be like if you were really good at hitting something or if you're a really good boxer and you knew you were going to hit it and you'd swing at it and it, and it would move out of the way. Just... And, 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 and so he, he only needed a couple of inches at the boards. And so you always had to have one arm on him, right, and one arm on the play because he almost had to be touching him because if you weren't touching him, that, then, then he was so quiet you wouldn't know where he went, so you couldn't rely on your ears. So he, so he, he eliminated that sense, the, the ability to hear. That is probably the best 
description I've ever heard of somebody actually playing against Wayne. And a few days later, I played, I, I've played 80 games against him head to head. And, and if you looked at the statistics, I mean, hey, I got a big poster on my wall with my jersey from the winning from from the biggest comeback in NHL playoff history. And and he's on it for the first two periods and I'm on it for the third period. And, and we we tied it up with eight seconds in the game and won a minute and a half into overtime. And that was the miracle on Manchester, correct? Yes. And is that probably one of the highlights of your career? Oh, yes, of course. It's a, of course, it's a highlight. How could it not be? It was, uh, it, it, it just, it's keeps going every year. It's hilarious. It, it boggles my <laughs> mind. No, it does. It boggles my mind. That was before I was born. I'm 35 years old. I know about that nearly 40 years later. I mean, it's, it's funny. It's one of these things that, that I don't think will ever go away. And, and after you play Wayne, you had the, 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 I don't know if this is an opportunity, if it's a good thing or it's a bad thing. You end up playing Mario Lemieux and I'm, you can offer a unique perspective. You've played against both. How would, how do they differ? Well, I played with Mario and against them. True, true. But we can get to that story later, but I never played with Wayne. Oh, I'm sorry. I meant against Wayne. I'm sorry. Sorry about that. Yeah, but I did play with Mario. I played with and against Mario. And so it's funny because people always ask me, who are the best players you played for, uh, played, played against, and played with? That's just a common question people ask. And I'm always confused if they know my era because I'm like, because I know, I know if they're asking the question, they, they're thinking of two players. And then I wonder, why would they be thinking of two players when, when if you compare Mario and Wayne, Mario is just like, is like nothing you've ever experienced in your life. W Wayne is a normal person who has a couple of gifts that are incredibly useful in hockey. Mario is like hockey. It, that's a fascinating way to spin it. So overall, you would put Mario as the better player, and Wayne was just a little bit more gifted in certain aspects of the game? Yeah, like Wayne had instincts around people and humans and feeling. Mario, Mario. I mean, he's a feeling guy, and he's got kids, but he he doesn't feel like Wayne feels. So. Sure, sure. That's a great way to describe him. So, December ends. It, it had been a shaky month. The Kings are having this up and down season. You know, for you at this point in the season, you're about halfway. What kind is going through your mind? You'd been frustrated previously. Are you? Are things going better now? Because Pat Quinn's there. Or are you still kind of up in the air? It was such a tumultuous time. You know, the times in your life, every all the listeners would know a time in their life where they, where they just can't. It, it, it's such a firestorm that later in life you just can't remember what happened. Um, you know, there's a blank space in there where I knew I had to get something done because I had to get out. It was like a mission I was on, like a military mission. I, I had to escape. Yeah. I you were fighting for the next step in your career. You didn't know where it was going to be, but you knew no. you had to fight for the next place. No, I, yeah, I would have gone back and played lacrosse if they didn't want me anymore. I, I just had to do everything that I could do. Kings battle their Smith Division opponents uh, four times in the month of December, and that's against the Winnipeg Jets. We haven't really had anybody that's played the Jets a lot. Do you remember playing against the Jets that much during your era? Any memorable games against them? Yeah. Uh, well, my buddy Jim Kite, who played for the Winnipeg Jets and was drafted the same year as me, we're friends today because his career ended with a tragic accident, and we became friends afterwards, even better friends. And, and games against Winnipeg, because um, Jim and I knew each other, we were from Ottawa, 
more than once he held me uh, apart from their toughest guy because he knew their toughest guy would kill me. <laughs> and so, so, so Jim, because he's 6'5", 235 pounds, right? He would hold me in one hand, and he's a left-handed guy. He was also the toughest, voted the toughest guy in the National Hockey League for, for four years. He, 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 he would, I remember him in Winnipeg behind the net holding me with one hand and, and holding you know, the, who was the toughest guy in the minors, but I didn't know it, right? He had come up for one game with the Winnipeg Jets. He probably would have killed me. My career would have probably ended right, right there. <laughs> so did you thank him afterwards when you guys were having oh, a couple of beers? I always thank Jim when I see him at different parties in Ottawa now. He's, a, he's actually a dean. He's got his uh, MBA, and he's a, the dean of hospitality at Algonquin College. Dean of hospitality and your personal saint, that kind of kept you alive, it sounds like, against the Jets. <laughs> That's right. So uh, as we get into December, GM Rogi Vashan pulls off a trade December 9th in a rare three-way trade with the Rangers and North Stars. And as a result of the trade, the Kings picked up Grant Ledyard and legendary Islanders goalie Roly Melanson. Uh, I- I'm kind of curious. You know, the Kings had to give up 40, uh, former 30-goal scorer Brian McClellan, who's now the GM of the Washington Capitals. What did you guys think of this trade at the time? I know it was a long time back. Do you remember anything about it? Why not me? Why not me? Wow. Wow. The team continued to struggle. And the day after Christmas, the team participated in an exhibition game against the Soviet Red Army team. And I'm sure that you played against the Soviets and the Russians over your career. When you would play against these teams in these exhibitions, would guys get excited or was it just another night at the rink? It, it was uh, strange for everybody. I would, I would think so, but, but can you kind of go into that? How was it strange? Well, they were using technology that they're using today. When you say so, so they, technology is just a new way or a better way of doing something. So, was it... so they had a better way of playing hockey. They weren't as strong as us, but they were... You know, and they didn't communicate, I don't think, as well as us, but they were they were playing the game like uh, Carlson started playing the game, like winding things back, taking things back, you know, like, you know, now the game is played like that naturally. But but when we first saw them, uh, they they were leaving back passes in places that we would never have considered leaving a back pass. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, so it was fascinating. I got to play with Igor Larionov uh, with him on the power play as well in, in Los Angeles, who might have been their best center ever. And and, and so he, he was just, uh, they, they just had, they learned a different way than we did. And, 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 it, and it really, uh, I think it still shows today. Well, shortly after this game, you know, let's get to it. It's the end of the month, and you probably got a phone call. Can you kind of walk us through the end of your tenure with really the only NHL team you had known at this point? The first thing, you know, getting out. Imagine somebody opened the cell door for a second, and you could see your way out, and you've been trying to get out for five years. You know, you probably wouldn't remember the run to the cell door. Correct. But you'd remember when you arrived and Scotty Bowman picked you up at the airport. He picked me up at the airport and he told me in the car that he'd been trying to trade for me for four and a half years. How good did you and feel he, in that moment? And he, and, he, and he told me that he, you know, he, he'd always believed that I could be one of the top players in, in the entire National Hockey League. And he started me at center ice with Mike Felino and Paul Sear the next night. And I scored. I scored 13 seconds into my first game. And then, and then I scored again that game and got an assist and was first star of that game. And then the next 
four games. Um, my line, we got we got twenty seven points between us in in five games, and 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 I went from really not being able to function in Los Angeles, I can't even remember it, to being on what was at that time the top line in the National Hockey League. It had nothing. This whole thing had nothing to do with my physical ability. See, I was questioning my physical ability. I didn't know what was wrong with me. And, and I look back at it now that I know what I know about trauma, and I didn't know what was wrong with me. I was questioning my physical ability. And, 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 and it had nothing to do with my physical ability. I was looking at the wrong thing. I was focusing on the wrong thing. And, and, and nobody was helping me figure it out, you know, so this is the story I tell. I, I, I realized at that point that, that this, was a, this was a mental issue, and, and it looks like that's what we're proving at a scientific research level today. You nailed it. On February 1st, you became a one-man wrecking crew in the National Hockey League, scoring on your first shift, and it was unbelievable. So I have to ask, what do you think caused the trigger in your mind to change the way you were looking at things so that you could unlock your fullest potential. Belief in self. People believed in me again. And, you know, the next year in training camp, my the, after that season ended, we went to training camp the next year. I had 22 points in nine games. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And I was almost averaging three points a game. Which is at a clip that's, I, I mean, it's a, I couldn't even imagine doing that today in the 80s possibly, but now there's no way. There's no way. And was there anybody on the team since you're the new guy other than Scotty Bowman that kind of helped along with that process that kind of helped make you feel comfortable and, and give you confidence back in yourself? You know what? At, at that time in my life, it was it was it was just Scotty. I mean, you know, I, he had a lot of idiosyncrasies and we ended up having a falling out. But at that time in my life, um, it, uh, you know, it was Scotty Bowman who, who, who basically from a hockey perspective said to me, you know, I believe in you. He, and then that, that was it. So he gives you the opportunity to, to succeed. And, well, and Pat what, Quinn supported it. Pat, Pat Quinn probably wouldn't have let me go to a dangerous place. So he was involved as well, right? They wanted a safe place for Doug Smith. And, and when you're in a safe place, you can be productive. How did you feel about the Buffalo Sabres, I know that you talked about now you feel comfortable and believed in, but how did this locker room differ from the LA Kings? Uh, they weren't as divided. So, so when you're in a hockey dressing room and anybody who's played hockey knows when they're in a divided room. Uh, LA was a divided room for many, many reasons. There were a lot of distractions when I got to Buffalo. Everybody seemed like they, they were going in the same direction. Phil Housley, Tom Barrasso, um, Mike Foligno, Dave Anderchuk uh, was there. Tons Dave Anderchuk. Well, just like Dave, John Tucker, right? I could go on. Rick Sealing. There was a good mix of players in that room. So, you know, it, it, people were happy, and 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 I and I hadn't really seen that type of happiness uh, around the game for for a long time. You're on the upswing. You've got to be feeling great. March 10th. There's more reason to celebrate as one of your teammates, Gilles Perot, scored his 500th career goal. Nowadays, we hear about the toys and things like that. Did you guys do anything for Gilles back in the day for getting 500 goals? I remember carrying him around the ice. That was about it. Hey, that's better than and, nothing. And, and I remember that I think the day of that game, I think I drove. I used to drive. He used to pick, he used to pick me up in his old Jeep, and we used to drive to the rink together some days. He's just a 
the coolest guy. We did a music video together um, that, that I'm going to be posting probably next year. It's it's a music video I did when I was with the Buffalo Sabers. It was like, yeah, and and Joe was just a. I mean, he's a wonderful person. I mean, he's going to live a long time because he's one of the most low key guys I've ever met. I have to see this music video when you finally post it. You've got to send it to me so we can spread it out on Facebook and on Twitter. <laughs> okay, I, have I will. Got to see this thing. <laughs> You're hanging out with Gilles a little bit. It seemed like the team suffered or the team went through a good amount of improvement once you got there. So the vibes have got to be positive. Unfortunately, though, it, it, it kind of comes down to the final few games and you don't make it. What do you think ended up happening at the end of the season that kind of just it wasn't meant to be? I think we were too far. I mean, looking back at it, um, we were too far behind. Um, it was just one of those years where thing, all these things changes. They fired Jim Schoenfeld. You know, maybe Scotty Bowman made the decision two weeks earlier before Christmas and, and it, it would have come out on top. But I, I think they pulled the trigger uh, too late and, and their expectations might have been a little off the charts. So close, but no cigar, right? Yeah, and it literally came down to two games. It was the Sabres and Habs would split the final two games, which unfortunately wasn't enough. And the Sabres ended up missing the playoffs by like a point or so. It wasn't much. But one of the things that you did get to do is you got to play in the old odd. And I've got to ask, what was that building like? No, it was home. It was my favorite home in the National Hockey League. So, you know, you see these movies of athletes today and they walking down the tunnel. And, you know, I guess it was my Yankee Stadium uh, to For the sure. baseball fans out there. Uh and I, I, I remember the, the cages, the fences that went from floor to ceiling when you walked off the ice and the people hanging on them, the fans, the people there in Buffalo just, you know, they love the game so much. Well, I, I tell you, man, you gave us a, a glimpse into the year of your life. And I think also a side of hockey that a lot of people don't see, which also during this year was when Pele Lindbergh was passed away passed away he was killed in an auto accident i believe he he hit a tree and it was a drunk driving issue what was everyone's reaction in the league with that was drinking a huge issue in the nhl at that time well as part of the culture yeah the only thing that changed the drinking culture was probably you know chew that came in from sweden you know when the swedes came into the game it changed a few things like you know nhl players you know, extreme athletes, they, they, they tend to be, you know, super hard on themselves, mm -hmm. you know, so they look for something to, you know, to, to get away from it at times. But most of the stuff that happens in the dressing room has been happening in their life from a very, very young age, right? So the, the drinking side of it, um, well, 80% 80, 80 of, of NHL players today are divorced, bankrupt, or in addiction counseling within five years. Which is insane to me, which is why they need a guy like you. And I guess that's a perfect segue. Can you tell people you're a best-selling author, you, you've you got your own business now, you came back from paralysis. What are you up to now, Doug? Well, I've written a book on trauma. So today, after speaking around the world, and I continue to speak, um, I guess I'm one of the leading experts on the impact of cumulative emotional trauma in the workplace, which is what I suffered from. Um, and, and, and I'm able to demonstrate that, that the ticking time bomb is cumulative emotional trauma in the workplace. It doesn't matter what workplace it is. If you're not managing your trauma, it's managing you. 
because we all we all suffer from this thing, right? It affects us. We know we, we all need to be told that it's okay when we go to bed at night, right? We're we're all human, we're irrational. So mm-hmm. I wrote a book that helps you. What it does is it gives you a systematic approach. It describes the three priorities that your brain has to make you healthy. And then it describes the eight behaviors that you can implement tomorrow in your life that feed those three priorities and your whole life changes. It's, it's incredible. I, I've been using it in my life, but I didn't realize it. I, uh, when I broke my neck and I was paralyzed, I was a quadriplegic, no bladder, no bowels, no arms, no legs. I, I was left with nothing but my thoughts. And that was really the beginning of the systematic approach to rebuilding my, my mind, my brain, my, my body. Uh, that was the beginning. And now I've documented it. So you can get it. You can just, you can send me a note. I'll send it to you. I, I, I want to get the message out there. So anybody that has an opportunity for me to share this story at the front of the room, I've got it all in pictures and video. Doug, I, I have to ask, you're a quadriplegic. You didn't give up. What made you keep going? What was it inside you that said, I will not quit? I think most people would have probably just thrown in the towel. Day... Day four, um, I was suicidal, mm. and my wife had just had our second child a week before. So we had a two-year-old little girl, and we had a newborn. And so, when I brought it up with my wife. She, she, uh, she said, are you all right, Doug? Oh yeah. She said, not a chance. I believe in you. And now you have impacted people all over the world. And it's incredible to see the work that you've done. And, um, I think it really speaks to your character to that it wasn't just you, but now you have helped others. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you for that. Well, pass along system 438. Like I, I listened and I counseled hundreds and hundreds of people just trying to get them on the right track. And it's just a little tiny adjustment. It's not a big change you have to make if you're feeling down or bummed or the hockey career is changing. Uh, you know, you're trying to figure out what to do. You know, it's just a little tiny change. And so if my system, if what I've done to stumble through my life can, can help somebody else stumble through theirs, then, then that's fantastic. I really appreciate the opportunity to share it. What is your website if people want to get a hold of you, if they have questions, if they want you to speak? Can you share that? Yeah, it, it's just DougSmithPerformance.com. Everything comes to me. I've got an incredible digital footprint. We're upgrading it, you know, this fall, but it's still cool as it is. There's a video there that's three minutes long that that really shows you the story, the footage, and and the message. So please grab a hold of it, send me a note, and thanks so much. I told you it was unique. It was a little different. Doug was just so honest. I I wanted to just let him talk. And he gave me a point of view that I never, ever really thought of. I mean, think about it. You're 19 years old. You're drafted to go into a city. And like for him, he went and bought a car and he's in L.A. There's all sorts of temptations. It's, you know, 
I just hadn't really thought of that. And I guess it makes you kind of look at things a little bit differently, especially for back then when they didn't have the help that players have now. But we hear about so many younger players off the ice getting into trouble, whether it be drugs, whether it be uh, having too much fun. And then there's tons of stories I'm sure we don't even hear about. Um, but you you always kind of like, what are they thinking? Well, I think Doug's interview kind of said a lot. It, it kind of you know, when you deal with that kind of pressure and have that kind of stuff happen, it's 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 easy to to fall prey to to things off the ice, if that makes sense. So I want to thank Doug again for coming on. Um, amazing speaker, amazing talker. Check out his website. Amazing recovery story, too. Like he was paralyzed from the neck down. He, he thought about suicide. And now here he is, you know, 20 years later. He's got a successful business, uh, speaking all over the world, just an honest dude. Um, check that out. Really good. So I apologize. The intro and outro were a little rushed today, but I'm sure the content of the interview made up for it. Um, thanks again for tuning in. If you like what you hear, please consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Also, don't forget to follow us on social media at Snapshots in Hockey History and on Twitter at Snapshots in. Don't know if there's going to be a show or not next week. It's Veterans Day down here. I might be doing some travel. Might take the week off to do some catch-up, get a couple interviews done. Uh, we'll make sure you follow social media, and I'll keep that updated if there's going to be another show or not. Have a great week. We'll talk to you soon.